Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23, as God prepares to include the Gentiles into His covenant-keeping people. Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. The voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited the men and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, it is our desire to uh, find your grace this morning as we interact with that word. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that you would take these poor and feeble lips, these unworthy lips, you would take a coal from off the altar. And put it upon my lips and enable, Father, these words to be words anointed by your Spirit, building up your people and encouraging them. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. Family had gone to the movie theater and on the way in, they asked the oldest boy to go and get some popcorn. And by the time that he arrived with his arms full of popcorn, the uh, theater lights had kind of dimmed and he was walking up and down the aisle, obviously could not find his family. And the lady who tells the story uh, says that finally in frustration, he says, does anybody here recognize me? (laughs) And uh, I thought, you know, that is just like the church, not the dim lights or dim wits or anything along those lines, but just that people sometimes feel left out. Uh, Just think of how you feel when you go into a movie theater, when the lights have dimmed down and you're trying to find your place and where is the rest of the family, and you get a little bit of a a sense of how uh, strangers sometimes feel in American church, and I pray that it would not be the case uh, at our church. A man did a survey at 18 churches in his city on 18 successive Sundays because he just wanted to get a feel for what the churches in that city were like. And because he was a bean counter, he had a scoring system worked out. He gave 10 points for each smile that was given to him in the church, 10 points for a greeting given to him by somebody that was sitting nearby, 100 points for an exchange of names, 200 points if anybody invited him to have coffee with them in the church, 
um, 200 for an invitation to return to the church, 1,000 if somebody introduced him to another worshiper, and 2,000 if somebody pulled him over and says, I need to introduce you to the pastor. And he wrote up the experiment and he said this, I sat near the front. After the service, I walked slowly to the rear, then returned to the front and went back to the foyer using another aisle. I smiled and was neatly dressed. I asked one person to direct me to a specific place, a fellowship hall, pastor's study, etc. I remained for coffee if served. I used a scale to rate the reception that I received. And there was the potential for churches to earn over 4,000 points. And so uh, the fact that he went out of his way to stick around and to try to um, be approachable It was rather interesting, the results. After awarding each of the churches some points, he said, on this scale, 11 of the 18 churches earned fewer than 100 points. 11 of the 18. Five actually received less than 20. And I wondered, well, I wonder how our church would score on that. I think in some areas they'd probably score fairly well. But I have seen strangers on occasion sitting in the back and nobody approaching them sitting for or standing for quite some a while. And I think that's the norm for churches. Definitely should not be the norm for this church. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, it takes deliberate planning and action to break out of that kind of a mold and to be a very friendly church. Uh, the Church of Jerusalem has not by this time exactly thrown out the welcome mat to Gentiles, have they? Uh, If it hadn't been for Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch would have come to Jerusalem and left Jerusalem without ever having seen the inside of a Christian home, ever having the gospel uh, preached to him. And we saw last week that Cornelius was a seeker, but when he came seeking, again, there was not exactly a friendly uh, uh, reaching out to Cornelius. Uh, Our focus last week was on the heart of the gospel, but uh, we did look a little bit at this uh, facet. All throughout this book, the beginning of this book, God seekers don't get a good reception. And so what God has to do in this chapter is he has to break Peter out of his mold, out of what he's comfortable in doing, and get him into pursuing the will of God. Uh, By chapter 11, the rest of the church is beginning to try to be receptive to the Gentiles. But in chapter 15, you find they still are not feeling totally comfortable in these Jewish churches. And the issue comes up again in chapter 21. And it seems as if nothing is new under the sun. And I think the primary issue is that people have a difficult time with change. There are other issues as well. But it's not like people are bad people or they're unfriendly. I think most churches, there's a lot of friendly people. Christians are friendly people. But uh, there's an issue of focus. Uh, But... uh, Uh, There's also an issue of habit. Uh, People are usually much more comfortable in conversing with those that they like conversing with. They don't even think of reaching out to others. And we see the same is true with Peter in this chapter. His heart was right, and it's not as if Peter is deliberately running away from God like Jonah had done. If you take a look at verse 9, it says, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. <clears throat> the sixth hour of the day was noon, and while Peter is waiting for his dinner to be cooked, he goes up to pray. Uh, he loves fellowship with the Lord. The Lord is, is, is close to him, 
And uh, he wants the Lord's will in his life, but there are all kinds of distractions that keep Peter from moving into God's will. And I can definitely relate with Peter. This sermon is as much a preaching to myself as it is a preaching to our congregation. And so we're going to look, first of all, at the distractions that hinder us from doing the things that we really know we ought to be doing, but uh, we either don't think about them or we fail to be involved. First of all, there are the distractions of the body. It says, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. Now, he wanted to pray too, but he found this hunger pulling him away. There is this, there is this uh, battle that's going on within his soul. There is a distraction. Our undisciplined bodies many times are like the child who has not been trained on how to interrupt the parent, you know, quietly. The kid's constantly, mommy, mommy and patting on you and trying to distract you from the conversation. And our flesh feels like that. It's constantly distracting us, keeping us away from prayer. Uh, Here's what one person, when he was discussing prayer, said. It is a constant battle to keep the mind on prayer. The body and its clamorous demands intrudes itself on even so glorious and thrilling a privilege as communing directly with the Lord of glory. And so Peter's first distraction is a very ordinary one. It's his body. It's his hungers, right? And rather than ignoring that distraction, God uses it to teach Peter a lesson. He's going to have to put him into a trance in order to do that first. Uh, Verse 10 says, But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him. And let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. So God's getting Peter's attention. And interestingly, he does it at the point of his very weakness uh, with his hunger. But Peter is shocked because God is asking him to eat animals that the ceremonial law had said you must never eat. You must never touch. He's shocked by this. Now, Peter can't deny that this is a gift from God. After all, it comes down from heaven and God himself commands him to uh, eat it. But Peter also knows the ceremonial law forbids eating such unclean animals. And he has had a whole lifetime of uh, learning to find such food revolting. He's been brought up to do things one way. He's been brought up to be inflexible. Now, I've learned to eat just about anything that's put in front of me, so I have a hard time relating to Peter, but I think some of you can definitely relate. From the time that you were young, there are certain foods that you just don't want to eat, even if it means that you might be um, offending your host. And uh, you might not be the best candidates to go to you know, China or someplace like that because gagging in front of your guests is not a cool thing to do in front of your hosts. And so... Uh, You know, some of you, I think, can definitely relate to what he is doing here. Peter has distractions of his upbringing. And don't just think of the food issues. Uh, Food is a big one. But if you think of all of the things that you were brought up to do, and then just realize, are any of these things, things that are hindering me from accomplishing what God is calling me to do in my life, it'll be an excellent exercise. Excellent exercise. Because we don't like change. We like to do things the way we have always done them. We don't like getting out of our comfort zone. Third, he has distractions of inertia. Now, inertia with physical objects is defined this way by the dictionary. The property of a body 
by which it remains at rest or continues moving in a straight line unless acted upon by a directional force. Let me just illustrate because I think illustrations are easier than definitions. Inertia is what makes it really hard when you're pushing a truck to get that truck going. And inertia is the same thing that makes it hard for that truck to stop going quickly anyway once it has been going. And so a secondary definition of inertia is the inability or the unwillingness to act or to change one's actions. The inability or the unwillingness to act or to change one's actions. Verse 13, a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter's in a trance, so he's going to have a hard time doing anything. But God's call to action implies that Peter has been involved in inaction. He's later on going to be making it clear exactly what kind of inaction he is talking about. But this, too, is a common distraction to man, inertia. It is much easier to continue doing things that you're used to doing, even if they're difficult things, than to stop what you're doing and to start something brand new. I mean, it's just human nature. This is something that we have to live with, inertia. It's a fact of life. It's easier to converse with your friends after church than it is to step out of your comfort zone and to talk to a total stranger. Um, It is much easier to go through the daily routine than to obey God's promptings to witness to someone. It's easier to sit down on a sofa after work and channel surf than it is to minister to your family, right? And we've got to recognize the kinds of inertia that have been distractions from doing God's will in our lives because change is difficult enough. We've got to recognize the need to change, but we also need to recognize the distractions that keep us from the changes God has called us to do. And inertia is definitely one we need to keep in mind. Fourth, there are emotional reactions that we are prone to. Uh, Some people are a lot more prone to emotional reactions than other people are. But Peter is definitely one of those. If you read through the Gospels, you cannot avoid seeing the fact that he is a very impulsive person. I'll just give you some examples. When Christ wants to wash the disciples' feet, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. That doesn't sound very submissive, does it? It sounds like just an emotional reaction that comes off the top of his head. Well, when Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, Peter is devastated, and he comes out with another emotional reaction, and he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Well, hadn't he just finished saying, I will, you will never wash my feet? Now he's saying, yeah, my feet and my, my hands and my head. And Jesus has to disagree with that as well. Peter is the one who's quick to pull out his sword and to cut off the ear of Melchus, right? He's the one who wants to jump out of the boat. He's chaffing at the bit. Lord, call me to come to you and I'll walk on the water. And Christ calls him and he goes out there. And so sometimes his emotions are things that cause him to quickly go off and obey the Lord's will. And other times they just flat out are a distraction from doing God's will. And I think that's what's going on in this particular passage here. Peter says, not so, Lord. Now, in one way, it's kind of shocking to hear Peter just contradicting the law. I mean, it's just outright rebellion. No, Lord, I'm not going to do that. The Lord just told him to do something. He says, not so, Lord. And yet I'm afraid that this is a malady that is common to human nature. Every one of us experiences this from time to time. And it makes me so, so grateful that the Lord is patient and he's gracious and he is kind with us. 
But our emotions many times are our masters. They're supposed to be our servants to serve us and be used to God's glory. Um, uh, Poitras uh, talked about lordship emotions. They're geared to serving God rather than serving ourselves. But too many times our emotions are not made to mind. They're not trained to be obedient. They are a weak point. And they are distractions from serving the Lord. I want you to think about the logic of that statement, not so, Lord. There was a young believer who was called to be a missionary, and he did not want to be a missionary. And he was trying to rationalize this call that the Lord had given to him. And his best argument was the fact that he was an incredibly successful businessman. And he thought to himself, you know, I could send two or three missionaries out to the field if I continued to work here as a businessman. If I quit... That means only one missionary can go out there. So maybe the Lord's call to missions is a call for me to give sacrificially and to be supporting other missionaries. But, you know, he just couldn't get away with it. His conscience was bothering him. And so he went to a veteran missionary and explained his dilemma that he was in. And the missionary turned to this passage in Acts 10 and he read Peter's not so Lord. And then he said this, you cannot say that it is either not so or it is Lord. The two words put together are a contradiction in terms. Now then, take my Bible and take this pencil. Sit down here and pray about it. Then cross out one of the expressions. Cross out the words not so and leave the word Lord. Or cross out the word Lord and leave the words not so. You cannot have it both ways, he said. Now that's logical, isn't it? But a lot of times we don't think logically. Emotions are such irrational things. And we, we just are not paying attention to what our mind and what the Spirit is telling us to do. And that's the way it is with Peter here. He is thinking with his emotions. And if you are given to emotional outbursts, you need to lay those down at the cross of Christ and say, Lord, sanctify my emotions and help my emotions to serve Your purposes, to serve Your Lordship rather than making my flesh as Lord. The last distraction was habit. Verse 14 says, For I have never, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I have never. Have you heard that? (laughs) Or have you said that yourself? I've never, never done it that way before. Now, you might think that we're the only ones who are predisposed to being governed by habit or tradition, you might call it. But I think this is common to human nature. I was talking with a Pentecostal pastor from the Assemblies of God Church, and he was just bemoaning the fact. You'd think he was a Presbyterian. He was bemoaning the fact that his whole denomination is so entrenched in tradition, it's just hard to break the members out of it. And I talked with other pastors from other denominations. They were saying, yeah, we're having the same troubles as well. Now, this is human nature. We tend to fall into habits of our training, of our upbringing. And so uh, here are some of the distractions. Now, habits can be a good thing. Uh, In fact, we couldn't live if we didn't have habits. Uh, There's something that's an essential part of life. But on occasion, they can make us blind to doing God's will. Well, let's take a look next at how God breaks through these distractions and gets Peter on the move and enthusiastic about God's uh, new venture. We've already seen that God had to give him a vision uh, in verse 10. And really, this is sort of like knocking Peter over the head. You shouldn't have to have uh, 
a vision. God's Word ought to be plenty, anything that we need. But sometimes we're a little bit thick-headed. And so God gives a vision. In fact, I think this may be one of the reasons why there are so many dreams and visions in Muslim lands. Sometimes we've heard reports in various places where the entire village has had the same dream, the same night, you know, to be prepared for this guy that's going to come through and speak the gospel to them. And I think part of the reason is because they are so resistant to change. Uh, this is a, a religion that has such a hard hold upon people that it's like God's uh, busting them over the head to get their attention. But sometimes this is the way the Lord works. The second thing that God does is to insist on His right to call the shots. Now, in this case, God insists on His right to change the food laws. And the question is, are we willing to acknowledge God as Lord? A Lord calls the shots. Now, God's moral laws will never change because they're a reflection of His character. And He said in His Word that they will never change. They'll heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot or one tittle of His moral laws will ever change. But any of the other laws given in God's Word, He's got the right to change them any time that He pleases, even arbitrarily so. He's got the right to say, okay, I told you last week you should do this. I want you to do this other thing right now. He's the Lord. He has the right to do that. I think this is one of the reasons why it is perfectly justifiable for God to have um, condemned Adam and Eve for their rebellion against Him with regard to the fruit that He ate from the tree. Now, some people think this is so ungenerous, so unkind of God, you know, that He's going to deny a person the right to eat from a tree. In fact, I've read some essays by atheists who mock this point and just think that it's uh, ridiculous. But they forget to, to, to remember the incredible generosity of God. God gave them in that garden more fruits and vegetables than they would have uh, the ability to sample in an entire year. Look at all of the fruits, all of the vegetables around the world today. Those would have been in that garden. God was incredibly generous. He said, you can eat of every tree except for this particular one that is before you. <clears throat> and if God says no, it is forbidden. If He says you must eat, then it must be eaten. But you know what? Any good parent will imitate God in uh, God's parenting techniques. God didn't put tons and tons of no-nos into that garden. He could have, but He didn't. Uh, he put one there, and He put it there to establish His authority. And in the same way, uh, there isn't the need for a parent to put many, many no-nos into the house. Don't touch that door. Don't touch this thing and the other thing. You can have a lot of things under lock and key so they're safe, but you do need to put out at least one or two no-nos to train that child not to touch something. <clears throat> and the moment you put that no-no out there, it, it could be arbitrary. This could be the no-no, this chair. Don't touch that chair. And as soon as it's a no-no, that child will be attracted to that chair like a magnet. <laughs> And uh, we'll begin testing whether you really mean it. You know, when you're not looking, he'll come over and see if he can touch that chair and see if he can get away with that. And uh, anyway, that no-no becomes a training tool to teach the child to submit to authority. And there are a lot of children who have grown up without any no-nos in their life and they've grown up to be self-centered uh, adults who are constantly bucking any authority that God has placed over them. You need to teach your children this lesson early. Doesn't matter how small the directive may be, children will try to push the limits 
to see if they can get away with it. And, of course, there are adults who do exactly the same thing. Now, that's just a side note, but I think it's a very legitimate application. Here, God insists on his rights to call the shots. He had already changed these food laws earlier. Under Moses, I mean, under Noah, he changed them the first time. Then under Moses, he changed them again. And now again, under Christ, he is going to change uh, those food laws. And he has the right to do that. This demonstrates that they are not moral laws. And submission to the changes made in the New Testament is a test of our willingness to let God call the shots. And you might think about that. You might think, are there any New Testament uh, commandments that God has given that raise my hackles and make me want to go out and touch the no-no that God has given uh, to be in rebellion? And we might rationalize in my mind, well, that command is just an arbitrary command. It doesn't make any sense in our culture. Just realize God sometimes gives commands just to establish His authority, His right to make the command. The third thing that God does to move Peter to obedience is to give Peter a rebuke. Verse 15, And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Nobody likes to be rebuked, but Peter is rebuked three times uh, in this chapter. God persists in giving the command and in giving the rebuke three times. The fourth thing that God does is to connect with Peter's emotions. Now, I find this very interesting because, after all, it's Peter's emotions that got him into trouble. But I want to explain why this would have been a very powerful, very powerful appeal to Peter's emotions. Let's read verse 16, and I want to explain this to you. It says, This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Remember the story of Peter's denial? Jesus predicted that Peter was going to deny him three times that night before the crow cock crowed twice. <laughs> Say that three times. <laughs> and uh, Peter said, oh, no, I'm not going to deny you. Even if everybody else denies you, I am not going to deny you. He was just so sure of that. Well, sure enough, he denies the Lord three times that night before the crow cocks twice. <laughs> and at the third time he looks at Christ and Christ looks at him and all of a sudden he remembers what Christ had said he's devastated and he goes out and it says he wept bitterly now how many times do we deny the Lord just like Peter did there and we tell ourselves I am never going to do that again I don't ever want to have to go through that pain again and what happens we find ourselves denying the Lord all over again. I mean, it happens. It happens. And God knows our human nature, and He answers with His grace after the resurrection. In John 21, Jesus questioned Peter three times if Peter really loved him. Now, I think that what He is doing here is He is saying, Peter, I know that you are weak. I know that even your love for me is a really weak love But I'm going to emphasize this three times because I want you to know, despite the fact that I know you've got a weak love, I love you. And I'm going to be bringing you right back into the apostleship again. And so uh, what he does is each time he uh, asks, Peter, do you love me with the highest love possible? That's agape love. And Peter says, you know that I love you, phileo love. That's uh, a friendship love. He doesn't have the courage and the boldness to say the other. But on the third time, Jesus asks, 
Peter, do you even phileo love me? Do you even have that lower level of love? And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? It wasn't that there was three times he said it, but the third time he said, do you even have phileo love? I'm questioning that. And Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Phileo love. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, the thing I want to bring out from that is what an incredible blessing it was that Jesus, in effect, was saying, you may have denied me three times. And though I have three times questioned whether you really love me, I want you to know I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm giving you back your job as apostle. When Jesus says each of the three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, he was reinstating Peter into his office three times. So it was a time of humiliation. It was a time of exaltation. It was a time of shame. But it was also a time of joy as Jesus ministers richly in his life. Because it's not just mercy. Uh, Mercy is you're not getting the rejection that you deserve. It's mercy plus it's giving to Peter far more. He's ushering him into incredible privileges. And you could not go through those three denials those three questionings of his love and those three reaffirmations of the call to the ministry without it having a profound, profound effect upon you. Now, here comes three Gentile believers who are God's sheep. Now, sheep don't belong to Peter. They belong to the Lord. And it is Peter's duty to feed those sheep, whether they are young or old, beautiful or ugly, easy to get along with, hard to get along with, Jew or Gentile. It really does not matter. Christ is, in effect, saying, when these people come, feed my sheep. At number three comes up again in verse 16. Uh, In effect, Peter is denying the Lord three times again when God gives him that arbitrary command, rise, kill, and eat. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. He probably thought after the pain that he had endured, he'd never deny the Lord again like that. And yet three times, he says, not so, Lord. And yet is that not just like us? I think it's just like us. God calls us to do something uncomfortable, maybe socially unacceptable, culturally unacceptable, simply hard on our pride or hard on our flesh. And we say to the Lord, not so, Lord. We're denying the Lord just like Peter did. And God uses various means to move us out of our comfort zone and into obedience. And I think it's very important that we not ignore his promptings because those promptings are his love for us. That we not ignore the the admonitions that come from the pulpit or the convictions that come to you as you're having devotions personally in your home. We've got to be sensitive to what he is doing. Overcome that inertia. Do what God wants us to do. Now, I love how this passage goes on. Peter still doesn't get it. And I want you to look at verses 17 through 18. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. It says he wondered. Aren't you glad you're not the only slow one? (laughs) Peter was pretty slow, too. He wondered. Peter didn't get it. And this just, again, shows to me the richness of God's grace, His mercy, and of His patience. Now, don't get me wrong. He does not uh, just ignore the disobedience. He's going to be moving us into sanctification. That's one of the reasons He came. But He is patient with us in our slowness. So Peter is saved, he's secure, he's not going to lose God as his father. Uh, Even though Peter had denied Christ once before and he's denied him once again, in fact, he's denied him three times in a row once again, 
Christ still lovingly, kindly, graciously keeps prodding and moving forward. And it's such perfect timing here in his providence. Notice it was immediately after the vision and while Peter is wondering that these three men come to the door. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And of course, God makes providentially sure that there would be just three sheep that would come to his door that would need feeding. Three Gentiles who came before him. And so it's hard to miss the connection between the, the threes in the vision, the three men here, the three commissions to feed his sheep. But isn't that the way we are? We miss the obvious over and over again. We miss the obvious. And this is one of the reasons why I am uh, patient with you when I teach and I preach and I counsel and I uh, do shepherding visits and you ignore the things that I have to say to you uh, because I am convinced that God is going to have His way with you in His sanctification. And I can be patient because I know God knows how to shepherd. He knows how to change hearts and I can't change hearts. And yes, I do grieve because I want your joy, right? I want your joy. But um, I am committed to continue prodding you, patiently trying to move you forward, just like God is doing in his life here. Because I know eventually God will open your understanding if, if I'm right and you're wrong, or he'll open my understanding if uh, I'm wrong and you're right. But uh, at some point, you know, we can trust God to be sanctifying his people as we move forward. And I definitely know that God knows how to do it. Anyway, because Peter is a bit dense, uh, God gives Peter one final bit of guidance in verses 19 through 20. And this finally makes everything come together and gel and makes him enthusiastic in following God's will. Verses 19 through 20. When Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. I'm glad that... Uh, God sent them to Peter and sent Peter to them because otherwise we wouldn't be here. Uh, the gospel would not have gone to the Gentiles. The kingdom would not have been expanding to uh, the far reaches of the globe. <clears throat> and yes, it was an uncomfortable thing for Peter. But years later, when Peter is able to look back on this event, he realizes the discomfort he has in making these changes is nothing compared to the glories of the expansion of God's kingdom that he ushers them into. It is nothing. But again, this is so much like our human nature. We are blind to the treasures that God has in store for us. All we can focus on is, oh, this is so uncomfortable what God is wanting me to do right now. It's so uncomfortable. I don't want to change. And instead, I think what we need to realize is that every commandment that God gives, it doesn't matter how trivial the commandment might be, how silly it might appear to me. It is given by God for our joy and for our blessing. And I want to encourage you to stop evaluating God's commandments based upon what others think or upon your pride or sacrifice that has to be made or any other uncomfortable thing because change is always uncomfortable. We've been called to change. We just need to get used to it. Instead, I would urge you to believe by faith that every one of God's commands, yes, even the New Testament no-nos that seem like, that's so arbitrary. Why is God giving that command? Even those no-nos are given by God for your blessing 
and for your joy. Now, you don't immediately experience the joy. I'm not so naive as to think if you start obeying these commandments, you're going to instantly be leaping for joy any more than the child who has just been trained, you know, not to touch this no-no is going to feel like there's any joy in that no-no. He doesn't understand yet that not touching the stove, you know, is a good thing. It's a joyful thing. And certainly, if you're constantly bucking God's authority on those no-nos, you're not going to be entering into the joy of the Lord right away. But I guarantee you, it was for your blessing. It was for your joy that God gave those. And so when God calls you to submit and your pride says, not so, Lord, you need to cross out either the words, not so, or cross out the word Lord. Those do not go together. And the sooner you start saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, 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 the sooner you're going to be able to start dancing like that song, which we Presbyterians don't sing, (laughs) you know, talks about. uh, Because there is, there is an energy, there is a joy, there is a peace, there is a satisfaction that comes when we say yes to the Lord. And so when God calls you to wear something or tear down something or to come or to go and your flesh says, not so, Lord, for I've never done anything weird. (laughs) I've never done anything humiliating. I've never done anything hard. You need to crucify your flesh and exalt your loving Savior. Peter certainly had no regrets in following God's orders. In verses 21 through 23, we see his full-hearted obedience. Uh, Nothing is held back. And as he obeys, God gives confirmation, ushers him into more and more of his plan for the future. 21 through 23. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa Joppa accompanied him. Now, I've been applying these verses in a wide-ranging ways, but the most obvious application is that we need to go out of our way by making strangers feel welcome in the church of Jesus Christ and the table of the Lord. Christ delights when we do that. And I once ran across a four-point outline on the verses I've just preached through, um, verses 9 through 23, that was called God's Table Manners. And you might think of them as God's New Covenant table manners uh, for the household of faith. And I just want to quickly go over them. First table manner is that you must eat what's on your plate. Now, I'm sorry if your mama never taught you that rule, but at least in the spiritual realm, okay, eat what's on your spiritual plate. This is God's desire. Now, some of you pick and choose which of God's commandments you're going to obey, which of his word that you're going to follow. And there are some things that you're just not comfortable with. You say you're not ready with. And I've not mentioned any of those things. If I had brought up those things that you argue about, you would probably quite convincingly uh, win the argument against me, at least in your own mind, it'd be quite convincing. I've deliberately not brought them up. Instead, I've asked the Holy Spirit to bring those to your mind. And since I've not brought them up, it's God's Spirit that you're arguing with. It's not me. Okay, you know exactly what the issues are that the spirit has been convicting you. of, And um, uh, I have found that God knows how to win his arguments. And if you want his blessing, you're going to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. 
Instead of saying, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything like that. Uh, Don't say that. Don't say that. Eat everything on your plate. Everything. Even the spiritual Brussels sprouts. Okay? And receive it as a loving gift from the cook. Second table manner. Don't be rude to the guests. There may be guests who come into this building who are not used to eating the things that we eat. And you might say, well, hey, I don't like eating them either. (laughs) You know, how come they get away with not having to eat it and we have to eat everything on your plate? Well, it's because, you know, you've got a mama who loves you. (laughs) Uh, That's why. Uh, There are children who may not be used to sitting as long as your children do. Uh, They may be Arminian who come in here. or They may be Democrats and you don't like Democrats. Or they may be Republicans and you don't like Republicans. And what you need to realize is one of the house rules of Dominion Covenant Church and actually the whole household of faith is you don't be rude to the guests. Okay, you welcome them. You be gracious to them. You receive them. And if they come to the Lord's table enough times, they may start loving the food that God sets before them. Table manners are primarily for the household of faith. The third table manner is don't hog all the food to yourself. I uh, once knew a person that I just never ceased to shake my head at. I was just amazed at how rude this person was. Um, If he came to your house and you passed the food around and he was one of the first to get it instead of the last, you'd strategically put him last uh, the next time because... The last two people at the table wouldn't have any food because he'd put two or three steaks onto his plate. There wouldn't be enough to go around. And I just shook my head at that. And yet in the spiritual dimension, we can hog all the food to ourselves as well. What are some of the ways? Well, I think if you're a student of the Word, you just love digging into the Word, but you never share it with your family, with your friends or with other people, you're hogging the Word to yourself. All of those delights that God has given, they need to be on your conversation, especially on the Sabbath. What a rich day in which to share some of those insights that God has given to you. Another way that we can hog all of the food is by never inviting anyone to church. Another way we can hog all the food to ourselves is being a social clique where just your special friends, you know, are gathered around and others really aren't welcome. And uh, you young children, you know, when you have friends that you like getting together with and you prefer to be with, you know, Betsy and Anne and, and uh, somebody else instead of with Joe Schmo, all fictitious names, I realize. But you, you, you really prefer being with this small group and not with that other person. In a sense you are hogging all the food to yourself because social interactions is a kind of food that God has given for us to enjoy. Uh, Christianity is not just about our likes and dislikes. We need to be a church filled with gracious men, women, and children. Okay, the last table manner that I found in my outline that I had saved was scoot over and make more room at the table. There should always be room for more. We should never be an ingrown church. Instead, we should be a welcoming church. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore the issues that are in newcomers' lives any more than Peter ignored the issues that were in the Gentiles' lives. His letters were very straight-shooting letters, but the issue was not when you get your act cleaned up, we'll welcome you. They're welcome because none of us have our act cleaned up, do we? All of us are growing into the image of Christ, and we're never going to stop growing until the end of time. And so we receive one another, realizing that God is transforming us from glory to glory, from joy to joy. I want to end with a true story. 
two men visited a, a church on <clears throat> successive Sundays, several Sundays, and neither of them knew that the other was a visitor. Uh, they just knew that they felt lonely there. Sunday after Sunday, absolutely no one talked to them in this church. And one of them just got fed up and he said, man, if nobody greets me in this church, I'm never coming back. I'm just going to go on to another place. The other one was a little bit more outgoing. He said, you know, this really stinks, but I think I'm going to reach out and talk to somebody. Well, it just so happened on that Sunday, the usher seated them near each other. Actually, it was one right in front of the other. And uh, one of the people got up to stalk out and never come back to the church. But the other one just swung around, turned out, uh, held out his hand, and he said, see, what did he say? Good morning, sir. I'm glad to see you. Fine sermon, wasn't it? And then they struck up a conversation. We're so thankful to have friends, not realizing till much later that neither one of them were members. <laughs> they were both, ironically, the visitors in that story. And what I want to admonish you is this. Don't leave such things to chance. Don't leave them to chance. Let's move out of our comfort zones into the uh, arena of God's will, saying, Lord, no matter what discomfort it brings to me, I want to pursue after you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and that it does indeed move us out of our comfort zones. Forgive us for the times that we dig in our heels and resist. Help us to be children who quickly learn uh, to trust your authority, to follow after you, and quickly take on new challenges that you give to us. Uh, we want to be people not like the ten spies who, uh, because of the discomfort, just decide to bail out. Instead, we want to have attitudes of Joshua and Caleb. I pray, Father, you would bless this, your people, with your joy, with your peace, and uh, encourage their hearts as they seek to make uh, small steps of stepping out. We realize that just like Peter fell numerous times, we're going to fall as we seek to uh, do this. But Father, in your gentleness and your kindness, I pray that you would draw us closer and closer into your image. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.